Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Her figure was tall and nobly formed, her air composed and majestic, her carriage altogether royal, her features of exquisite beauty, and, with a character of grandeur, had a certain air of natural goodness that softened their expression, and won the love while she commanded the respect of those who beheld her. Louis of Mambo, 1677. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.6, Joanna of Naples, on trial for her life. Last time, I introduced Joanna of Naples, one of the few queens regnant of the Middle Ages, who came to the throne after the deaths of first her father and then grandfather, King Robert. Her early reign was dominated by disputes within her own family, especially her Hungarian in-laws, who thought she should give up some, if not all, of her power to her husband, Andrew. She had clashed with the Pope, and, thanks to some skilful diplomacy, largely gotten her own way. She had not had the best relationship with her husband, but they had finally reconciled and became pregnant with her first child. But then we left off with the shocking murder of Andrew by unknown assailants. Today we'll see the aftermath of the grisly homicide, which would eventually end up with her on trial for her life in Avignon. But before we get started, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. Your support is so appreciated, and I'm excited to say that it has enabled me finally to afford to get membership of one of the biggest independent libraries in the UK. Indeed, I wrote much of this library from the London Library, and was able to get hold of several 19th century books I would not otherwise have been able to get hold of. More books equals more and better sources, which equals a better and more accurate show. So I'm very excited to be allowed to work in these hallowed halls. But I wouldn't be able to do any of this without your support. So if you'd like to join my brilliant, loyal band of supporters, 
then please go to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also find the show on Facebook and Twitter as well. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The murder of Andrew, Duke of Calabria, and husband the Queen of Naples, was the great scandal of the age. It was a whodunit with enormous consequences, and the lack of evidence led to wild speculation. Chroniclers that generally are not known for their excitability went into overdrive, with wild accusations thrown at various parties depending on where their loyalties lay. For example... What did Joanna do after being told her husband had been murdered? Domenico de Gravina says that she lay in shocked silence, immobilised in bed for 24 hours, racked with shame and guilt. Another source has her leaving the corpse where it had fallen for three days until a churchman took pity on Andrew and took his body away and buried it without permission. The most famous account, though, comes from the Florentine banker, diplomat and chronicler Giovanni Villani, who wrote that Joanna fled the scene, whereupon all the great and good of Naples, quote, immediately took the road to Aversa, in an uproar of cries of pain and sorrow, and with great anger in their soul. They reached Aversa and came upon a throng in tears, then went to the body of the unfortunate duke, lowered their heads and cried. They then attempted to inquire as to the circumstances of the murder, but no one knew its cause, or its perpetrators. It's a colourful story, but completely false. Joanna didn't leave Aversa. We have documentation proving she was there for at least four days after the murder, and we also know that Andrew was swiftly and respectfully buried in Naples Cathedral. Moreover, a suspect was in custody for the murder after only two days. He was Andrew's chamberlain, who was massively in debt and had access to his quarters. As you might imagine, his interrogation was heavy on the torture and light on the good cop, with him being publicly carried through the streets whilst being tormented by red-hot pincers. Somewhat counterproductively, given they were supposedly interrogating the Chamberlain, they cut his tongue out to boot. His brutal treatment led to his demise before he divulged any of the names of his co-conspirators people who are undoubtedly wealthy, powerful, and well-connected. Which is, you know, pretty suspicious. Okay, so I bet you're all thinking the same thing. Did Joanna have anything to do with her husband's murder? That was indeed something that was on the minds of everyone at the time, and it cannot be entirely discounted. Let's remember that she was only young, about 20, and had been on the throne for just two years. She'd never got on with her husband, and he had been her grandfather's choice, not hers. She had no intention of giving up any power to him, but his family's influence in Avignon and Naples could eventually force her hand. Get rid of him, and she could rule alone, or pick a husband more to her liking. Moreover, she was surrounded by men who disliked Andrew, whose release of the Papini brothers threatened their land and wealth. 
Could she, in her naivete, have ordered his death in a fit of pique? Or perhaps have been talked into it by older and supposedly wiser heads? It's definitely possible. The murder had to have been organised from within her inner circle, but no one has managed to find any definitive proof at the time or since. Those that say she had nothing to do with it, like Joanna's modern biographer Nancy Goldstone, argue that Andrew's murder, far from serving her interests, plunged her into a crisis that could cost her her throne and her life. So far during her reign, far from being easily duped, she had proven her intelligence, political skill and guile in navigating troubled waters. For her to make such a catastrophic mistake seems quite out of character. Almost all her time so far had been spent delicately handling her Hungarian in-laws. To turn face and kill her husband would surely bring the wrath of a kingdom and a mighty army bearing down on its borders. It's a mystery that has no definitive answer. The case is cold and there's no definitive proof. But to me, the manner of the Chamberlain's treatment tells me that someone at the top had a lot to hide. And it's not beyond the realms of possibility that they were protecting their queen. Whether or not Joanna was involved, there is one man that most chroniclers point to as the most likely ringleader of the plot. And that was Louis of Taranto. Remember, he was Joanna's cousin, whose family had always been most opposed to the Hungarians. Not only was there this personal animosity, but he also had other motives that would soon become clear. Because the culprits for the murder almost certainly came from within her inner circle, Joanna needed to get control of the narrative, and fast. She wanted foreign courts, particularly Hungary and Avignon, to hear about the murder from her first, and give the impression that everything was under control. Yes, the husband of the Queen of Naples had been murdered, but the assassin had already been identified and put to death. No need to worry, nothing to see here. The Pope wrote back, expressing his sorrow at, quote, such a deplorable event, outrageous to God and shocking to the world. He also advised her to, quote, take proper precautions regarding yourself and the one yet unborn, referring, of course, to the child she was carrying. He concluded, quote, be constantly on your guard as to whom you trust and whom you ought to avoid. That last bit is the only indication that Clement gave that he suspected that the real mastermind behind the murder had not yet been caught, and that he might still be at large in Joanna's inner circle. This was later confirmed when he announced that he was sending cardinals to Naples to investigate if there was a larger conspiracy at work. Unlike other papal interventions in her kingdom, Joanna did not complain about this, most likely because it would have made her look guilty, but also because she was so heavily pregnant that she was bedridden for several days before delivery. On Christmas Day, 1345, some three months after Andrew's death, Joanna gave birth to a son, whom she named, yep, Charles, after both her father and Andrew's father and any number of other Charleses that were kicking around. As a further attempt to appease her in-laws, she entrusted his care to a Hungarian nurse and persuaded the Pope to act as godfather. This was all good stuff, all designed to make nice. She sent emissaries to Hungary to tell her in-laws about the happy news. But then she dropped a bombshell on them. There had been some clauses in her marriage treaty that prevented her from remarrying. 
and she was asking the Hungarians to waive those because she wanted to marry her cousin, Louis of Taranto. This wasn't just, you know, a little bit insensitive. It threatened the great union of the royal houses. The whole point of marrying Joanna and Andrew was to end the rift caused by Robert the Wise when he seized the Neapolitan throne. What would happen if and when Joanna and Louis had children? Would they supersede young Prince Charles? The Neapolitans certainly had previous for those sorts of shenanigans. The Hungarian king, Louis, wrote furiously to the Pope, accusing him of turning a blind eye to the nefarious deeds going on in Naples. He called on him to, quote, ensure revenge for this crime, so the felons covered in my brother's blood are deprived of all their rights to the kingdom. He then went further and openly accused Joanna of involvement. Quote, and those murderers are Joanna, husband killer and widow of my brother, Maria, her sister, Robert, Prince of Taranto and his brothers, Charles, Duke of Durazzo and his brothers, and all those who aspire to and covertly aspire to the crown. He further demanded that Joanna be stripped of her kingdom, with the crown passing to her son Charles, with King Louis acting as regent. So yeah, this is pretty powerful stuff. So why did Joanna do it? Why did she do something so provocative that would inevitably lead to war? Well, the most likely explanation is that she felt that she had to have a husband, someone who could lead her troops into battle. She must have felt that war was inevitable either way, that the Hungarians were always going to respond to Andrew's death with force. This way, she could dictate events rather than have events happen to her. Louis of Taranto was dashing, handsome, of good stock, and loyal to her cause. Indeed, he hated the Hungarians even more than she did. But he wasn't the only option out there. His elder brother Robert also coveted the throne, and had already tried to force Joanna into marrying her by writing to the Pope to tell them they were already engaged, something the Queen had to quickly deny. This fraternal conflict led to a brief civil war between the Tarantos, where Robert called on all his vassals, and Louis hired a bunch of Ghibelline mercenaries. Ghibelline, remember, referred to people loyal to the Holy Roman Emperor. As Louis had been Joanna's choice, this looked a lot like the Queen doing a deal with the devil to save her lover. This meant that Robert and his ally, Charles Durazzo, could paint themselves as allies of the papacy, who only wanted to bring the killers of Andrew to justice. They got a lot of juice out of this, and quickly Neapolitans turned on their queen. Raymond, the husband of her nurse Philippa, was captured by Robert's forces and tortured into confessing being involved in Andrew's murder, and naming a whole slew of co-conspirators, all of whom were close to Joanna, though he did not think of a queen herself. Robert's forces laid siege to the Castel Nuovo in the centre of the city, chanting slogans like, Death to the Whore Queen! and Surrender the Traitors! But Louis and Joanna's mercenaries were well equipped to keep them at bay. Indeed, Louis and Joanna weren't even there. They had already slipped away to her summer castle, the Castel del Oro. However, they couldn't hold these people off indefinitely, so Joanna had to make a deal. She gave up the accused on the condition that they would not be lynched and instead await the arrival of the Pope's representatives who would decide what to do with them. It took the Durazzos all of about a second to break their word 
and took the captives, which included Joanna's six-year-old nurse Philippa and a pregnant woman, to their castle dungeons and mercilessly tortured them. Meanwhile, Robert of Taranto imposed himself on Joanna, moving in with her and issuing proclamations, acting to all the world as if he was now King of Naples. The only thing stopping him from actually marrying her was the fact that he needed papal permission, which he, of course, sought. Joanna said nothing publicly, but used back channels to make it clear to Pope Clement that she did not consent to this marriage. She was playing for time, waiting for her lover Louis of Taranto to build up enough troops to free her from his brother's clutches, forces paid for by Joanna. Eventually, around three months later, Louis' troops were amassed outside the city. But then news came that Hungarian forces were massing for an invasion. Although the threat of Hungarian attack had always hung over Joanna and her kingdom, it had always been held in check by a combination of her own diplomatic ability and the general geopolitical situation. England and France had just begun what we now know as the Hundred Years' War, and this conflict forced everyone to take sides. Naples, as good allies of the Pope, were aligned with the French. The Hungarians, along with the Holy Roman Empire, were aligned with the English. Just as all of this chaos was going on in Naples, French and English troops clashed at Cressy, where, not to put too fine a point on it, our brave boys gave the frogs a damn good thrashing. The French king was wounded, and a great number of French dukes and counts lay dead. This disaster completely upset the balance of power, and left Naples, already in chaos, wide open to attack, as the King of France was in no position to help his ally. The Pope, who had always favoured Joanna over her in-laws, was also desperate to avert a Hungarian invasion of Naples, and so was forced to compromise. Those cardinals he had promised to send to investigate Joanna had never arrived, so he immediately dispatched a legate, Bertrand de Deux, who would have the complete authority to investigate the whole business and to try, convict and execute anyone deemed to be responsible, even Joanna herself. It was now around a year after the murder of her husband, and it's fair to say that Joanna was thoroughly on the back foot. She was an effective prisoner of a man who wanted to marry her against her will, an act that would be the end of her personal rule. Her lover and his army were close by, but threatened by a potential invasion by her brother-in-law, one that would be impossible to repulse. All of her closest friends and advisers were either dead, captured, or in hiding, including her closest intimate Philippa, who languished bloodied in a dark jail cell. Things were bleak. But, if we know anything about Joanna, it's that she never played defence. She was a decisive woman, and one very sure of her own right to rule. As Nancy Goldstone puts it, she was sovereign, and no one had the right to rule Naples while she still drew breath. The first thing she did was invest her son as the official heir to the throne, but her second move was a lot more spectacular. In October, Robert and Louis of Taranto's mother, Catherine, died. Joanna organised a funeral for her, and, as one might expect, Robert left the Castel Nuovo and attended the service at the Church of San Domenico. No sooner was he out of sight than Joanna invited in some of her troops 
expelled all of Robert's men and barred the gates. She was now a free woman for the first time in several months. And so, when the papal legate Bertrand de Deux showed up, she invited him to stay with her. Robert be damned. As you might imagine, Robert was furious and immediately took his revenge by having Joanna's nurse Philippa and one of her closest friends brutally executed right in front of the castle. Despite all the torture they had endured, none of them ever named Joanna as responsible for the murder of Andrew and stayed loyal to the end. By choosing to fight for her throne, Joanna had, in effect, sacrificed their lives. But that's not how she would have seen it. For Joanna, being queen wasn't something that could be cast aside. She was anointed by God and the Pope as sovereign. And in the words of a fellow female ruler several centuries later, she thought foul scorn of any who thought to wrest control of her realm. Well, of course, King Louis of Hungary had just such a design. And in March 1347, he formally declared war on Naples. This caused the Pope to panic, frantically writing to his legate to take control of Prince Charles and to name Joanna guilty of spousal homicide. However, Bertrand de Deux was not willing to do so. Whether it be indecisiveness or some particularly good politicking by Joanna, he dragged his feet. This gave her ample time to make her next decisive move. She had opened up back channels to Charles of Durazzo and flipped him onto her side by promising to marry her son to his daughter. It was agreed that Joanna would marry Louis of Taranto, but this agreement meant that the next consort of Naples would be a Durazzo. The final stage in her plan was to offer up a wealthy heiress with vast holdings in Greece to Robert of Taranto in return for him ending the civil war. He agreed, meaning that finally, 18 months after her husband's death, she was back in control and free to marry whom she wanted. With Hungarian troops crossing the border, she married her cousin Louis of Taranto. Importantly though, she didn't wait for papal dispensation for the match, as she knew the Pope would never have given it in any case, so the move was not, strictly speaking, legal. But this all meant that she now had probably Naples' three best generals on her side, and dispatched them north to meet the Hungarians in battle, while she stayed behind and made a deal with the Sicilians to make sure they didn't join the war. However, the Hungarian army was far larger than expected, and Joanna's carefully constructed alliance quickly fell apart. Robert of Taranto and Charles of Durazzo knew that surrender was the better part of valour, and opted to pay homage to the King of Hungary rather than to fight him, bringing all their troops with him. When this news reached her, Joanna knew that she had been beaten. The few men left to her and her husband could not protect her. She called together all her advisers and released all of them, and by extension all of her subjects from any loyalty to her, hoping this may save them from Hungarian wrath. This must have been hard, but an even worse wrenching task awaited her. She was still Countess of Provence, and planned to flee to those lands to escape the Hungarians, who would surely execute her if she fell into their hands. However, this would entail a dangerous journey by sea in the middle of winter. She would not risk her infant's child in such an enterprise. 
She knew that he would be safe in the hands of his Hungarian uncle, but one can only imagine how hard it must have been to leave him behind. The sources all agree that Joanna was a more than usually loving mother for the time, so we shouldn't underestimate how difficult this decision must have been. But she knew she had no choice, and we've seen time and time again that Joanna was willing to do whatever it took to protect her crown, even if it meant surrendering her son to her hated in-laws. So on the 15th of January 1348, Joanna boarded a ship and set sail for Provence, leaving her kingdom and her only child behind. One she would see again, the other she would not. As Joanna fled across the seas, her former allies, Charles of Durazzo and Robert of Taranto, paid homage to the King of Hungary, expecting that by doing so, their safety would be assured under codes of chivalry. The king was apparently gracious in victory, accepted their allegiance, and invited them and their families to join him in a feast. King Louis chose this ceremony to take place at Aversa, the very place where his brother Andrew had been murdered but it was a trap. After the meal, they and three family members were arrested and hastily convicted. Louis himself accused Charles Durazzo of being a, quote, monster of iniquity, holding him personally responsible for the death of Andrew. Charles was forced to show him the very spot where Andrew had been killed, whereupon the king ordered him to be beheaded on the spot. His headless body was then flung over the balcony, and it was not until the Hungarians had left that he could be recovered and discreetly buried. All across the kingdom, Hungarian troops and mercenaries looted and pillaged, with Joanna's supporters having to flee for their lives. Her sister Maria only just got away, with the chronicler Domenico de Gravina writing, She ran away in the middle of the night, half-naked, her two young children in her arms, and took refuge in the nearby convent. She would later escape, dressed up as a friar, and join her sister in Provence. Meanwhile, Louis declared himself king of Naples, amongst all the violence, and took possession of his nephew and Joanna's two-year-old son, Charles. Under the guise of protecting him from harm, he sent the toddler prince back to Hungary. A difficult, dangerous journey he would not survive. Joanna had saved her life, but had lost her only child. She didn't know this, though, as she arrived in Provence and progressed to the capital of Aix. Provence had always been a forgotten part of her various realms, and when she arrived she had to deal with multiple grievances right away, many of which dated back to her father's time. But she quickly got a handle on things, and Provence warmed their young countess. If she had been wired differently, our story could be taking a very different turn here. She had lost her kingdom... But life as Countess of Provence could have been very pleasant for her. A lovely, comfortable exile away from all the violence and upheaval of southern Italy. But Joanna had not come to relax. She had come to fight. Moreover, before leaving Naples, she had discovered she was pregnant again, which added an element of time pressure. She wanted her child to be born within a marriage considered legal by the church, Remember, she had married Louis of Taranto without the proper dispensations. 
and if her child was to inherit her various realms, she didn't want the taint of bastardy to stick to it. Before all of that, though, she needed to clear her name of conspiracy to murder, and only one man could do that. Our old buddy, Pope Clement VI, who, conveniently enough, was sitting 60 miles away in Avignon. However, she couldn't just show up. She needed a formal invitation, and that was not forthcoming. Clement was still in a bind, wanting King Louis to leave Hungary, but unwilling to antagonise him by receiving Joanna. Both King Louis and Joanna bombarded the Pope with letters, arguing their various causes. As was his wont, Clement stuck his fingers in his ears and wished very hard for circumstances to make this nightmare end. However, even he could only lull out so long, and a combination of stories of the horror of the Hungarian occupation and pressure from the French finally compelled him to receive Joanna. Once she received the invitation, she set off immediately and arrived at the city. She wanted to make a real entrance, and everything about her dripped royalty. She was dressed in white and gold, with a purple ermine cloak, carrying an orb and a scepter, and wearing a mantle which included the fleur-de-lis and insignia of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, a title she still claimed. Her formal entrance took place on the 15th of March, 1348, and she was escorted by 30 knights, with ladies-in-waiting trailing behind. The streets of Avignon were similarly decked out in silk and gold cloth, with garlands of flowers thrown down from the balconies at her procession. The great and the good of the city came to greet her, while the Pope, his cardinals, and representatives from every court in Europe, including Hungary, waited to receive her. When she arrived at the Papal Palace, she was offered wine and pastry and directed to the Great Hall, a long room decorated with frescoes. She walked slowly, her footsteps echoing, every step watched by spectators who had crammed into the room until she reached the dais. There sat the cardinals, arranged in a semicircle, and above them, Pope Clement, decked out in his most formal robes. They would be her judge, jury, and potentially executioner. She approached the pontiff, knelt and kissed his shoes. Clement then raised her up, kissed her, and motioned for her to join him on the throne next to him. The trial of the century had begun. The 22-year-old Queen of Naples now had to fight for her life, and the odds were stacked against her. Remember, the Pope had only months before sent a legate to her kingdom with instructions to convict her for the murder of her husband. First, the charges were read out, and Joanna was asked who would speak in her defence. To the astonishment of everyone in the room, she announced that she would do so herself. This was almost unheard of, and I would love to tell you what she said in her defence. But unfortunately, it was not written down. Indeed, the Pope ordered the official church scribe not to write down anything that happened, so that when the verdict came, he could mould the story as he wished to foreign courts. The only sources we have for proceedings come from three Renaissance chroniclers whose own sources are unknown and therefore are slightly dubious. Joanna was a woman who knew her own strengths, and also how to subvert expectations. She was a young woman, 
in an age where that got short shrift. But she did have two great advantages. First was her excellent education, which included a study of Cicero, one of history's greatest lawyers. Second, she came from an august line of respected kings and queens, whereas the Hungarians were still looked down on as second-class royals. And third was her natural charm and beauty. Both things she knew were weaknesses of the Pope. This was emphasised by Louis of Mamburg in the quote that I read at the beginning of the episode, but I will repeat it here again. Quote, Her figure was tall and nobly formed. Her air composed and majestic, her carriage altogether royal. Her features of exquisite beauty and with a character of grandeur had a certain air of natural goodness that softened their expression and won the love and commanded the respect of those who beheld her. In her biography, Nancy Goldstone translates another of the chroniclers, quote, She spoke at length with such grace and eloquence, brought forth so many good reasons for her defence. As to the murder of her first husband that many accused her of, she justified herself fully, both in that none of those convicted had ever implicated her in the horrific torture they endured, and by the eloquent defence she delivered herself in open consistory to Pope Clement and the ambassadors of the princes of Christendom. I can't tell you how much I would have loved to have read this testimony, but sadly it's left up to the imagination. What we do know is that it was incredibly compelling. In front of the whole court, the Pope declared her not only innocent of the crime, but banned anyone from ever suspecting she had ever been a part of it. It was an extraordinary, astonishing triumph, as decisive as any victory on the battlefield. To make her victory complete, Clement legitimised her marriage to Louis of Taranto and issued a remonstrance to the King of Hungary, rejecting his demand to be crowned King of Naples and informing him of his judgement. Meanwhile, back in Naples, Louis of Hungary was not having a great time. The brutality of his repression against any supporter of Joanna and the destruction to lives and property caused by his troops meant that he could never consolidate his rule over Naples. Moreover, and we'll talk about it more next time, an apocalyptic disease was scything its way through the kingdom, cutting down not only citizens, but also his soldiers, making it harder for him to keep the peace. Now, with any notion of papal support gone, Louis decided that it was time for him to pack his bags. In May 1348, he slipped out of the kingdom, His departure was so swift indeed that many didn't even notice he had gone for several days. Despite the departure of their king, Hungarian troops remained. So if Joanna wanted her kingdom back, she was going to have to fight for it. She had already burned through most of her ready cash and had been surviving up till now by selling possessions. To raise an army big enough to take on the Hungarians, she needed big money. So she was forced to make a big sale. The new papal capital of Avignon was not owned by the Holy See. It was actually on Provencal land, and therefore came under Joanna's jurisdiction. She therefore went to the Pope and made a deal with him to sell the city, bringing it formally under papal control. This is not a decision she would have made lightly. As a proud queen, she would have considered any loss of territory as a defeat, something only normally countenanced after a loss in war. But faced with a choice between her city and her kingdom, 
she really had no alternative. In return for 80,000 florins in cash, Joanna was first able to buy back all the possessions she had pawned and then spent the rest on a military expedition to take back Naples. She even managed to sweet-top Pope Clement into giving her some papal income from Provence to pay for the expedition, a privilege normally only given to crusaders. By doing so, he was, in effect, allowing her to portray this as a holy war. She couldn't yet travel to Naples, she was in the late stages of pregnancy, but was able to rally Neapolitan knights to rise up against their oppressors, and could back their efforts with cash. Before long, her banner had been raised in the capital, but they needed reinforcements from Provence. In June, she gave birth to a daughter, whom she and Louis named Catherine, and after a brief recovery from that, she secured the services of 200 knights for her cause and set sail aboard a small fleet of 13 ships. They landed on the city's outskirts as the harbour and castle were still in enemy hands, whereupon they were greeted by a raucous procession of nobles and townspeople who escorted her into Naples. Hungarian troops were not in sufficient numbers to prevent their entry, and the city partied all night at the return of their queen. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.